beginning in verse 1, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting when Phinehas son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. Yeah, I know. Really? This is one of those stories that causes people who don't understand the nature and character of God to say, cruel, heartless. I don't believe in that God. I don't want to have anything to do with that God. And to that, I would respond, you don't understand that God. Because that God is the God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That God and Jesus, same God, same Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You cannot separate out what God the Father, what Yahweh does in the Hebrew Scriptures from what Jesus does in the New Testament. Can't separate it. We have to deal with that. And so we're going to this morning. Father, I ask that you give us wisdom, the wisdom of your Spirit, to navigate this section of Scripture. Not just to understand what was going on and, and to have some comprehension of the situation, but Father, to have revelation in our hearts, first and foremost, of your nature, of who you are. Help us to grasp why it is you do what you do and why you did what you did in this situation with the sons of Israel. And Father, I pray that when we're all done with this, we won't be like deer in the headlights, but we will be children praising our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you do to save somebody you loved? How far would you go? To what length would you go for someone's eternal salvation, and I'm talking, put it on the line, the reality of life after death, the life eternal, what would you do to make sure that was secure for another, for somebody? Now, this morning's story, as we've already heard a bit, is a gory story. And I shared midweek that if it was streaming online, it would be rated TVMA for violence, sexuality, and graphic images. This is a story I wouldn't allow my kids to watch. And yet we're going to preach it today. It's a shocking read. It really is. Not only the fact that, that this Phineas spears through this uh, adulterous situation. Not only the fact that, that 24,000 in Israel will be dead by the time it's done. 
by the plague of God, but also the fact that God approves of the spear of Phineas, blesses the action, and even supports it by his own plague. I mean, you read that and say, how do we, what do we do with this? Listen, it is shocking. It's also one of the most important teachings we've come up against here for the church at the end of the age. The church at the end of the age. Listen, I wanna give you three considerations before we even get back to Numbers 25 this morning. Three things that I think will help us to navigate through this uh, difficult passage. Number one, the closer we get, the shorter the time. And I, I mentioned this Wednesday night as well. It's kind of obvious, the closer we get, the shorter, shorter the time. Romans 13, 11, Paul says it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And while that's an obvious statement, it is also one of the most encouraging statements in the Bible. Remember, every day that goes by puts you one day nearer, one day closer to being with Jesus. And so Paul says also in Ephesians 5, verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And that's what we need to understand and actually have been talking about recently that as salvation gets nearer, so evil ramps up. And that's exactly what we've seen throughout history. Israel, remember, Israel at this point in Numbers 25 is no longer Bamidbar. Bamidbar, the Hebrew word for in the wilderness, the Hebrew title of this book, in the wilderness. They're not in the wilderness anymore. They are actually what we could call Mamidbar, and that is also Hebrew, which means out of the wilderness. They are out of the wilderness. They are now in the plains of Moab. They're just across from Jericho, literally across the Jordan from Jericho. That's how close they are to the promised land. The journey, the 40 years, is almost completely behind them, out of the wilderness, and the closer God's people get to the promised land, the more the devil pulls out every trick in the book. Because he knows if they get in there, we're one step closer to the covenant promises of God. And I'm not talking about the Mosaic covenant. I'm talking about the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that is not what Satan's about. So he pulls out his thin, evil little playbook, and he is hell-bent on derailing all the promises of God. You need to understand, that's what he's about. That's why he steals and kills and destroys. That's why he messes with your life and mine, because he'll just take out anything that's in his way, and what his way is, is destroying the promises of God. As if. As if he could. Such is the arrogance of evil that he actually thinks he can stop, or as we were talking about, as Jake mentioned, cancel the covenants of God. You can't cancel the covenants of God. But Satan will do everything he can. In fact, in the final three and a half years of that seven-year tribulation period that the Bible indicates will close out this age, there will be seven last years at the end of the age, and three and a half years in, Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, tells us that Satan's access to heaven, which yes, he still has right now, read Job, his access to heaven is finally completely revoked. He can no longer even access that. His visa's canceled. There's your cancel culture right there. And down he goes, and the Bible says, Revelation 12, 12, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. 
The closer we get, the shorter the time. Hey, that's great news for us. That is terrifying news for the devil. The closer we get, the shorter the time. We say hallelujah. The closer we get, the shorter the time. He says, I'm running out of time here to do devastation and damage. So understand that. Of course, the situation, numbers 22 through 25, this all takes place because the devil is trying to stop Israel. He's done everything he could, tried to get into the people and into their heads and the grumbling and the complaining and all the whining that we saw before. Well, that's behind them. Now there are different ways he's going about it. In fact, on Wednesday, we saw chapters 22, 23, and 24. He tried through King Balak of Moab to get Balaam the prophet to pronounce curses on Israel. Let's get them cursed before they get into the land. And every time Balaam opens his mouth, blessing, blessing, blessing came out. It's marvelous. You can't cancel the covenants of God. So the closer we get, the shorter his time, the devil's time. Secondly, note this. This is very important. God's concern has been, is, and will forever be eternal. Eternal. Not temporary, not limited. See, that's how we think. That's how we view the world in our lives. We are so temporary. We view it almost minute by minute sometimes, don't we? You have one bad thing happen during the day, and what do you say? This has been a terrible day. <laughs> really? Really? Has every second of this day been terrible? No, it's just that someone cut you off and shouted a curse word at you. And you're like, what a terrible day this has been. Well, did you have a nice breakfast this morning? Did the sun come up? Did the water of the rain, you know, or did it water the... I mean, it, it, we never have a completely terrible day. If we did, we would just curl up and die. There's always good, you know, in, in the day and in our life. But see, we think so immediate and so temporary. God's eternal. He's I am, so he's always in the present. And he's always thinking, planning, and looking to eternity. Because that's where he is, and that's where he wants us to be. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. How can we, from a temporary perspective, instruct the Lord who is eternal? But Paul also says, but we have the mind of Christ so that we can think beyond the immediate, so we can look, we can set our minds on things above, on eternal things. That's the Lord. Listen to it in this context, John 3.16, which I started with this morning. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but be able to do miracles on earth. <laughs> whoever believes in him shall not perish but will do wild and crazy things in the name of Jesus. We'll have eternal life. Now I'm not saying that you, there won't be miracles on earth because there have been and there will be and that's Biblical. But my friends, that is not God's focus. We say, I'd love to see someone resurrected. Yeah, well, they probably wouldn't. <laughs> Why did you bring me back here? It was so good, I was done. Now I gotta pay my bills. Visa's calling me, thanks a lot, bro. And I'm playing with that, but my, my, my friends, the idea is that our focus is so now, and his focus is so then. Eternity. That's where we're going. That's what he desires for you. Shall not perish, but have eternal life because God is eternal. And he wants our focus to be eternal. Which, by the way, makes our limited you know, vision in the day better. Because on the worst of days, I'm going to heaven. On the worst of days, Jesus is gonna call. 
and I will be with him. So if you've been raised up with Christ, Colossians 3 verse 1, that, that is if you've given your life to Jesus, if you've trusted him, if you believe him as your Lord, Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We sang a line this morning, right out of Ephesians chapter 2. We have been seated in the heavenly places. We're already there, as far as God's concerned. And he says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. God's concern has been, is, and will ever be eternal, which should help us with this chapter and why he did what he did. It's an eternal concern. By the way, let me just note this for you. Had the Lord not intervened in the way that he did, in what we're about to read again here, had the people given themselves completely over to idolatry and immorality at that time, the gospel might have been derailed. Okay, this is all part of the bigger plan. It wasn't just about getting them into the promised land. No, it was about all the way back, going back and, and fulfilling Jacob's prophecy, Genesis 49, that the, the scepter will rise from Judah, right? That, that the king is gonna come out of Judah, going all the way back to the earliest days, God's promise that a Messiah is gonna come and I'm gonna save this world. It's why he flooded the world, remember that? He flooded the world because we got down to eight people who believed, and if we had gotten to no one who believed, guess what? The line that ultimately would bring Jesus into the world would have been stopped. And all who had believed in God before the flood would have been lost. He has an eternal perspective. And so even with this right here, he is looking to bring the gospel. He is looking to bring himself, Messiah, to come into the world, to save the world. And along the way, if there are things that would derail that, and again, if Israel had given themselves fully to what is offered them here, then we would not be sitting here this morning. See, God sees that. We don't, we just go, oh, this is really brutal. <laughs> You're missing the point. So God's concern has been and will always be and is today eternal. And the closer we get, the devil knows the shorter his time. And finally, number three, and we'll really get to our study this morning, whew, Number three, human compromise invites a curse, which is really at the heart of what we're gonna see. Human compromise invites a curse. Numbers 22, 23, 24. Again, Balaam, that prophet for prophet. Bible refers to him 60 times, which is interesting to me. 10 times the number of man. This guy is as human as you get. Refers to him and refers to him with three dire warnings. We went over Wednesday, but if you haven't heard this, I gotta cover them again. Three warnings about this guy, Balaam, that New Testament calls out, and First Peter does in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, talks about the way of Balaam. The way of Balaam, which is greed. Greedy prophet. He does what he does because he wants to get a profit from it. It says, the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the, rate, the wages of unrighteousness, 2 Peter 2, 15, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression. <laughs> a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. And again, as we discussed, when your donkey is smarter than you are, you got an issue. Okay? So the way of Balaam was greed. He was in it for himself. Secondly, the error of Balaam is cursing what God has blessed. 
that was his great error, that he really thought he could go in there and curse. And he tries to, but any attempt to curse those who are chosen by God, be they Israel or the church, will fail, must fail. Because, one more time, you just can't cancel God's covenants. So it, it will fail. The error of Balaam to try and curse what God has blessed, it's never going to work. It never will work. If someone tries to come along and curse you for following Jesus, it's not going to work. They cannot curse the Jesus out of you. That's good news. So Balaam was hired by Balak of Moab, and understand this, he was hired to curse Israel in three different tries across five different discourses. Every time he tries to curse, all he could do is bless. Understand, Balaam's attempts to curse fail, but number three, the teaching of Balaam succeeds. The teaching of Balaam. Oh, there's the error of Balaam thinking he can curse, and there's the way of Balaam, greed for himself. But then the third thing the New Testament calls out is the teaching of Balaam, and it does, in fact, succeed. What is the teaching of Balaam? Note this, moral compromise. Moral compromise. The teaching of Balaam does what no spoken curse can do. Watch this, verse one again. While Israel remained at Shittim or among the acacia trees, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. How was that worked out? Where does that come from? Balaam. See, when all the cursing doesn't work, Balaam leans into Balak and the Moabites says, listen, there's another way. There's more than one way to skin this cat. Sorry, Mary, I don't want to be offensive. <laughs> you cat lovers. I won't even tell my cats in heaven joke. I'm going to just let, leave that aside. I will. He, he, he tells them, listen, there's a way. I can't curse them, but you can cause them to curse themselves. How's that? Moral compromise. Moral compromise. Here's what you do. You tell the, your daughters, put on their linens, you know, their nice linen dresses, and walk there in front, of the, in front of the Israelites. Yeah. And invite them to a party. Start engaging them in some of your culture, and they will curse themselves. You know what? You won't hear the counsel of Balaam, the, the, the teaching of Balaam on moral compromise. You won't hear it or see it at all in, in the story before us. 22, 23, 24, 25, it's like, okay, well, where is this teaching of Balaam? And you might even think that chapter 25 is separate from the previous chapters until you get to chapter 31, where of the women of Moab and Midian, Moses makes this comment in Numbers 31, 16, because these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. So it's the teaching of Balaam that unraveled this whole thing. God doesn't ever want his people to forget the threat of the teaching of Balaam, which is moral compromise. He even says in Micah 6, 5, my people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, Beor answered him from Shatim to Gilgal, remember this story. Remember what Balaam taught them to do, told them to do. Uh, he says, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. 
so that you can understand as you read through Numbers 25, what God does is right. And he will always do what is right unto eternity. By the way, the last time Balaam is mentioned of those 60 times in the Bible, the very last time, it's by Jesus. And he's talking to the church at Pergamos. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to, number one, eat things sacrificed to idols, and number two, to commit acts of sexual immorality. Let me give you one other little side thing to note. Anytime you see the word immorality in the New Testament, the word is pornea where we get pornography, and it's specifically sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Jesus says that's what Balaam taught Balak and the sons of Moab to do. Cause the Israelites to get into idolatry and sexual immorality. And that's the story before us. It's the teaching of Balaam unraveling this moral compromise among the people of Israel. Note this at the very end of their journey. That's why I say this is important for the church. Satan's playbook is very thin, and he is even now replaying the same thing with the church that he played with Israel there in the plains of Moab. If the enemy can just get you, get me, to compromise a little bit of our faith, a little bit of our holy values, a little bit of our biblical morality, he won't have to curse you. You take care of that on your own. We do all the work for him. So listen again to what Moab did by Balaam's malicious counsel. The Moabites, they invited the people of Israel, verse two, to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Now, it wasn't like, hey, come worship our idols. It was, hey, come have a barbecue. Come on, have some steak. We got some good meat, good eating here. Come on, party with us a little bit. Enjoy yourselves. You know, now remember, and I may be getting ahead of myself here, but remember that the whole time that Balaam was up on the mountains of Moab trying to curse Israel, Israel didn't know. Spiritual battles raging above them, and they didn't have any idea, kind of like us. Oftentimes where the spiritual warfare is going on, and we don't have a clue, we're just going to Safeway to get a thing of milk. And eggs and fabric softener, you know? I mean, just a few little things, and we don't even know what's really happening and Israel didn't know, so when the Moabites began to say, hey, come sup with us, Israel didn't know the true intention. Hey, these people are pretty cool. They're inviting us to eat, and off they go. And as, as this went on, they ate, and they bowed down to their gods. Verse three, so Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And when you see that phrase, joined themselves, you need to think of it in terms of sexual immorality. They joined themselves. As a man joins himself to a woman, as we would normally think of in marriage, or should think of in marriage. They joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. So, three parts to this story this morning. Number one, the sin. The sin, what we call the sin at Peor. Peor is up on the mountain. It's, they're the mountains of Moab, and, and there's a temple there to Baal, Baal of Peor. And at 
Baal Peor, the Moabites, and by the way, the nomadic Midianites. You might notice that there's a daughter of Midian who's part of this mess as we get further into it. Because the Midianites were nomadic and they at this time were in the region and alongside the Moabites, kind of hanging out together. So they're all in this, Midianites, Moabites, and, and they're there and they invite and entice the Israelites to this sexual sinful party. Draw them in, lure them in, and again, Israel was clueless to their real intentions, which was to see them cursed. But they couldn't curse them, so compromise, compromise. At Baal Peor, Baal was worshipped. Now, we say Baal, in the Hebrew, you would say Baal. Baal and his female consort, Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth, remember, Bible students from Wednesday night, that Baal worshipers believed that Baal and Ashtaroth Literally, they had sexual intercourse, and by these two gods having their sexual intercourse, brought fertility to the land. That's how women believed they got pregnant, and how they believed their animals had babies, and how they believed the land became fruitful, because Baal and Ashtaroth were up there doing it. That's what they taught and believed. And to worship this, they would emulate it at the temple. They went to the temple prostitutes. And so what happens here for the, for the first time is the people of Israel, even having lived in Egypt, the people of Israel now are introduced and seduced by temple prostitution, which will affect and infect the Israelites for nearly a thousand years because of this moment. That's how serious this is. This is, again, we see right now that, well, okay, yeah, that's not good. It probably shouldn't have done that, but hey, wink, wink, look the other way, sweeping under the carpet, no big deal, right? <laughs> right? And God's saying, for a thousand years, this is gonna cause death and pain among my people. It's gonna take that long before finally Judah is taken off into Babylonian captivity where idolatry is rampant and they get so overfed on it. It's like going to the Shikshadel, you know, Institute and you just smoke, 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 smoke cigarettes until you're just sick of cigarettes and can't smoke anymore. That's what he did with idolatry. So the people finally, after all that, will say to Asherah, bye-bye, Felicia, and be done with it. But it'll take a thousand years. And to be very serious, this is second generation Israel. Remember, these are the children of the children of Israel now. It is their, Numbers 25, is their golden calf moment. That's how bad this is. It's their golden calf. The teaching of Balaam, moral compromise. You know, it's an old adage. If you can't beat them, join them. We can't curse them, so bring them into our fold. Give them a little taste of what we do, and they will curse themselves. What does that have to do with the last day's church? The last day's church. I'm speaking generically. I'm speaking globally. I'm not saying this fellowship. I'm not saying the church is in the, you know, Island County or Skagit County region. I'm just saying the church in general doesn't seem to think sexual immorality is that big a deal. Am I wrong? Christians who, uh, you might go, oh, yeah, boy, that's kind of a shame that happened. Oh, yeah, well, they did that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Let's sing another song and just ignore that. Hey, we have to be accepting, right? We have to be loving. So even though this was chosen, even though this behavior, it's, it's not that big a deal. Fornication, premarital, cohabitation, adultery, affairs, 
even the embrace of homosexuality in the LGBT community, all of the flying of the rainbow flag in front of churches, all because the church is saying, again, generic, it's not that big a deal, really, come on. I mean, there are much more serious things we should be focused on, right? So, and we have to be loving with our culture, and we have to be tolerant. How are we going to invite someone in sexual immorality and sin in their life? How are we going to invite them in? We're going to say, hey, don't worry about it. Jesus just loves you anyway. You know what? He does love you. He does love me. He does love the sinner with a love that is, again, eternal. Eternal. We're so stuck in the now that we think we can set up these little policies that make it easier and more comfortable for someone deep in their sin to walk in the door and feel like, oh, I guess it's cool. But it has the adverse effect because the sinner walks in and goes, well, why would I waste my time here? They do the same thing I do. All they have to do is read the statistics on marriage in the church. Read the statistics of sexual immorality among Christians. Guess what? No different in this last day's church. You think maybe the story is applicable? Listen, when we compromise, even physically, we invite the curse spiritually. And that's the problem with the sexual immorality that we see again today. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee pornea. Flee sexual immorality. Don't embrace it. Don't welcome it. Don't be okay with it. Don't tolerate it. Flee it. Run from it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And then he, he explains why this is such a big deal. And again, this is not Pastor Rick, oh, he's going off on a guilt trip tear. No, this is what the Bible says, and this is why it's such a big deal, this whole sexual immorality in our culture and infecting the church today. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from your God, and that you are not your own? Paul says earlier, he says, would you take God's temple and join it with a prostitute? Would you walk into a brothel with your Bible? No, you'd leave that home because, you know, the two really don't mix. And I'm, I'm not saying any of you are going to a brothel. Boy, I hope not. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That means where you go, the Spirit goes. What you do, you're engaging the Spirit. How do you think the Lord feels about that when acts of sexual immorality are so easily tolerated in the church? Paul says, your body, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you and whom you have from God and that you are not your own. You have been bought with a price and you know what that price was. Therefore, Glorify God in your body. That's the final word on the subject. That's all we really need to know. Glorify God in your body. Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He's talking about the flesh. Present your behavior, your body, your action. Let this be a sacrifice to God. It's not some generic present your spiritual self 
Present your soul and your thoughts and your mind. Yeah, that's important too, but it's as, it's as basic as your body becomes a sacrifice to the Lord. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And again, someone would say, well, I, I, I know, I get it, okay, I get it, Ricks. Cool your jets, man. I know the Bible says stuff like that, but, but a loving God really doesn't care about all that, does he? Verse three continues that the Lord was angry against Israel. The word angry there is yihar, and yihar means burning hot. It means enraged. The Lord was fuming when he saw what his people were doing. Think God's okay with sexual immorality? The Lord was fuming. Verse four. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them. In broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Has God's eternal view changed? If you look back at Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, Balaam actually said, proclaimed the truth that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God does not repent of what he said or done ever in history because it's always right. So if he said it then, he doesn't repent of it now. Ah, maybe I was a little harsh with the Israelites. I had to be, you know, those are rough times back there, kind of the wild west of the Bible, so I had to be tougher. No, God does not repent because what he does is right. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And we often use that verse to say, isn't it good that God's faithful to us even when we blow it? Listen, this means God has to be God. It means he must and will be righteous always. Though we are not and though we fail, he will be faithful to who he is eternally. Again, that's comforting when we're talking about his faithfulness to us, but Paul is talking about his faithfulness to himself. God must be faithful to God. His righteousness, his virtue, his perfection, all the morality that we talk about, the biblical morality, that, is, that comes straight from the heart of who God is. So what was offensive to God then is offensive to God now. That has not changed. Don't mistake his patience for a casual tolerance of sin. And think about this, at the very end of this age, again, just prior to the start of the millennial kingdom, at the end of that seven-year tribulation, Revelation 19, verse 1, John says, after these things, I, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. But John hears something else. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Hallelujah. True and righteous are all his judgments. So back in, in 25. Numbers 25, the Lord calls on Moses and the judges of Israel to execute 
literally all the leaders of this rebellion. Note that in verse four, it says, take all the leaders of the people and execute them. Now he's not, he's not saying everyone who's a leader, kill them because this is happening. All the leaders who are leading them into this situation, because in verse five, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So it's the leaders who are going that direction. Now the tragedy is that many of the leaders of the people were the ones leading them into this immorality. And in fact, the man that we already read about and are about to look at again here is a leader of the tribe of Simeon, Shimon. So there are leaders involved in this, heading this direction and engaging in this immorality, and the Lord says, it's done. He says, literally, note this, execute them in broad daylight, literally hang them in broad daylight. This was to be a hanging execution. All the leaders who compromised in this rebellion. Why? It's interesting. Why execution by hanging? If you just listen to this, but this is over in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. He who is hanged is accursed of God. Guess what? The curse got into Israel. The curse made its way in. Balaam couldn't curse from above, but their compromise brought the curse on themselves. It welcomed it. And so they were to be hanged because that was a symbol that you have been cursed by God. However, in the story, it really doesn't look like anyone has the guts to carry out God's divine sentence. Is that the last day's church too? Not having the guts to speak out and, and, and just to declare clearly what the Lord says about sexual immorality? Now we feel bad about it. We look at our culture and go, oh, it's terrible, all these things. I can't even watch a show anymore that doesn't go there. And uh, I, just, I feel bad about that. Well, that's exactly what's going on with Moses and the leadership. They're weeping. They're repentant themselves. They feel horrible about it. But nobody apparently has begun this execution that God called for. No one had the guts to stand up and say, I'll do it, Lord. They're just sitting around the tabernacle weeping. No one has stepped up. Verse six, then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Oh, woe is us, woe is us. This sin is so bad, isn't it terrible? Do something. And they were doing nothing. And so here comes this guy and we see now compromise that brings a curse, that even brings a seared conscience. This guy is so brazen. He is so flagrant. He, obviously, his conscience is seared as with a branding iron. Paul says that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, that you get to a point where sin gives you the inability. You can't even tell what's right or wrong anymore. This guy just flagrantly walks in with his arm around the Midianite girl. Hey, what's up, Moses? And into the tent they go. And everybody knows what's going on. This is not now up at Baal Peor. This isn't with the temple prostitutes outside the camp. This is right in the middle of the camp. And some commentators think it was right there at the tabernacle itself. Unbelievable, the sin. Part two, the spear, verse seven, the spear. 
When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. The word body there is belly. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. So we see here that the fury and wrath of God is already unleashed. As the leadership of Israel apparently is doing nothing, weeping, yes, repent, feel bad, but not doing anything to confront this sin, so God sends a plague. People start to die. This is all happening, this amazing, intense moment And the only thing that checks the plague is the spear of Phineas. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. Phineas is sitting there among them. He sees this happen. And and for Phineas, I can hear him saying, it's enough. It is enough. And he grabs his spear and into the tent he follows them. I don't know if you heard a shriek, but the plague stopped. And the spear went through, note this, both of their bellies. Sin on a stick. <laughs> a sin kebab. I don't know. I, you know, this, I, sh- I shouldn't make light of this. But he goes in and he spears them through. Gordon Wenham says her body is literally her belly. And the description of the crime appears to be intended to suggest that Phineas slew them in the act of intercourse. So again, this is a, doesn't get more real than this. I mean, this is a brutal story. And it's, it's hard to even comprehend. At first, it's, it's hard to comprehend that this might be the right course of action for a priest. Man, don't call the pastor because <laughs> I, I, I hear he's got a spear. I do have a machete in my office, so just saying. <laughs> it's a souvenir from Honduras. It's, it's not that sharp that a priest would do this. A a high priest. Again, Aaron, Eliezer, Phineas, grandson, off he goes. It's an incredible moment, but remember this. What did the Levites do by the command of the Lord back at the golden calf? Same thing, same thing. Slay every one of your brothers, the Lord commanded the Levites who were engaged in this sinful idolatry, and 3,000 Israelites died that day. It was the job of the priest. Get this, listen, it's the job of the priest. I believe it's the job of the pastor to carry the spear, or maybe we should say the sword. And part of the reason why the last day's church is so lax on sexual immorality is pastors aren't carrying the sword. Into battle, into dealing with these things. Please don't rush out of here and kill someone. Just stay with me a few minutes here. Numbers chapter three, verse 10 tells us, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood, but the layman who comes near shall be put to death. So even there, recognize it was the priestly duty that if someone violated the the border of the tabernacle even, violated the holiness of God, the Levitical priesthood was to put them to death. This was part of the priestly duty to protect holiness, to guard the tabernacle, and to be, yes, protectors of all Israel, willing to do whatever it took 
to stand for the righteousness of the eternal God. Remember, the eternal God whose concern is eternal. So what he says do, because big picture, he's gonna make it all right. I may not understand right now in this moment, but he's got an eternal view and that needs to be my concern as it is his. Now again, I'm not suggesting, and I'm being very serious here, I'm not even hinting that anyone turn to violence for the sake of righteousness because we live in the age of grace and our call, the goal of our teaching, the Bible says, is love. Our call as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring the grace of Christ and the love of God, but it is also to speak the truth in love. And sometimes the truth cuts. Sometimes the truth jabs. And sometimes the the truth, even spoken in love and concern for a brother or a sister, it's gonna hurt a little bit. Our problem is we won't even speak the truth. We will not wield that sword, this sword. Again, what are we willing to stand for? How far are we willing to go to save somebody rather than turning our heads and going, well, you know, maybe it'll be okay. I just, I can't, I can't think about, I can't think about that my son or my daughter or my, my father or my, my kids, I, I, I can't think about them being lost. I'm just not gonna think about it. Think about it. Don't you want them saved? then do something. Speak the truth. I know this is uncomfortable, but Phineas was acting under God's direct decree. Phineas was doing exactly what God said to do. Well, he he does his own variation. He does it with the spear. But understand that stopped the plague that had already taken the lives of 24,000 Israelites, this plague that came by their widespread moral compromise. So comes the spear of Phineas. The name Phineas, you might want to note this. Phineas means mouth of brass. Mouth of brass. Brass in the Bible, bronze, it's the color of the altar of sacrifice. It is the picture of judgment. You could say Phineas acted on God's judgment when no one else had the guts. Phineas did, why? To save the people from themselves. Because if he hadn't acted, what was 24,000 would very quickly have been 27,000, very quickly would have been 30,000, and then we're looking at 50,000. I mean, it just wouldn't have stopped. He saved the lives of Israel by taking the spear into the tent. Verse 10, and then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Interesting. God approves of the action of Phineas. God says, Phineas, Phineas, he's my man. (laughs) He did right. Why? Because Phineas is aligned with the, the jealous passion of God. You Bible students, remember this. God's jealousy is not like man's jealousy. In fact, even the word that's used when God is called jealous in the Bible is only used of the Lord. It only describes the nature and character of God. God's jealousy, it's not a controlling suspicion. That's human jealousy. God's jealousy is a a passion. In fact, the word is also translated, maybe better translated, zealous. That same word I've told you before is used in Isaiah 9, 6, where it says the zeal 
Isaiah 9, 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Passion of God to accomplish for eternity, for your eternity and mine, whatever he's gonna do, he will do to save us. Now, some hear all this, some read the story, and they still might say, Phineas is brutal, and that Old Testament God is cruel and inhuman. Let me put it to you this way. What do you call a doctor who surgically goes in and excises a malignant tumor? Causes pain. Oh, the patient's gonna know pain. They're gonna have to have recovery. They're gonna lose something that was a part of them. What do you call that doctor? What do you call that surgeon? Cruel? Brutal? How about a lifesaver? And when we look at the perspective of the, of the eternal God, we recognize he will save lives. That's his desire. From the divine eternal perspective, it's eternal life that concerns him. He is zealous for Israel's future. And by the way, jealous for your eternal condition and mine. And so he will do surgery and he will excise that malignancy. He will take out that compromise that brings a curse. Because the Lord is not slow about his promise, 2 Peter 3, 9. As some count slowness, he's patient with you. But he's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So how about you and me? Again, here at the edge of the promise of the coming kingdom, here we are, my friends, and the compromise is rampant in the world and sadly in the church, but we have a sword to bring. We have a spear Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. If you say, well, I don't know what to say to a friend, a brother, a family member. I, I don't know what words to speak. Here you go. Here you go. You don't have to say. Just let them know what the scripture says. And you can even do that with compassion and, and love. Look, I, I, I know this is difficult for you to hear, but this is what God says. This is what the Bible declares. And then you let the word go and do its work. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. We get stuck in the soul. Our, our minds get stuck. And God can make division so that the spirit is free to think clearly of the division of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees it all. He's not shocked or surprised by the worst of our sin. That's, that's what's remarkable is that God who is capable of such anger, such wrath, such fury is still saying, look, I know what you're doing. I just want you to stop. I want to bring you into a right relationship with me. What would you do, again, to save someone you love? How far are you willing to go? How passionate will you be for someone's eternal salvation? He says in, in verse 12, therefore say. Actually, you know what? Skip. Skip down to verse 14 for a minute. We'll come back to verse 12. Just to round out the story, the, same, the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri. Zimri, his name means song or music. He was singing a different song by the end of this day. Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of the father's household among the Shimeonites or the Shimonites. The name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Bill. I mean, Zur. 
You know, when I read her name again, I, I, I thought about that and I thought, how sad. How sad. And, and let that be a reminder. My favorite comedian growing up and where he's ended up because compromise brings a curse. But note this, pay attention to this. Her name is Codsby, who uh, her father was head of the people of a father's household of Midian. So her father was a leader in Midian. She's in on this whole thing. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them for they have been hostile to you with their tricks. The whole thing was a sham. They weren't trying to be friendly. With which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. That is because of this paganism at Peor. And Israel, by the way, God says, strike them, Israel will. We'll come to that story later on, uh, Numbers chapter 31. They will strike Midian. They will follow through in the command of the Lord here. But get this, understand this, Cosby, her name means my lie, my deceit. She is, <laughs> what a representative of the liar and the father of lies who would do anything to steal, kill, and destroy. The whole thing, this, this whole thing on the part of Moab and Midian, the whole thing was a lie. The whole thing was a deceit. The feast, the sex, the compromise, all of it was just a deceit to curse Israel. That was what they were trying to do and they succeeded to a, to a degree until Phineas stood up and so we see the sin through the compromise that welcomed the curse. We see secondly the spear that checked the curse and now finally number three all of this brings, surprisingly, the shalom. Shalom. Go back to verse 12. Therefore, I say, or therefore say, behold, I give him, Phineas, my covenant of peace. My covenant of peace. It shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And I had a, a brother in Christ come to me a couple of years ago, actually, maybe a year ago. And I had just preached about and talked about the seven covenants of God. And he said, I think there's an eighth one. I'm like, what are you talking about? The covenant of Phineas. It's a covenant of peace. Now, I don't normally include that in the covenants of God because though it is a covenant, it's a very personal one for Phineas. Uh, but you can include it. Hey, it's a good number too in the Bible. Uh, the covenant of peace that he makes now with Phineas because of what Phineas did. Phineas's action not only checked the plague and quieted things down in Israel, it guaranteed that the high priesthood of Aaron would now go from Aaron to Eliezer, not to Eliezer's other sons, they would be part of the priesthood. They, they would be considered Aaronite priests, but the high priest would always from then on be of the line of Phineas. By the way, that's even eternal. It goes right into the kingdom. There are some sons that will come along the line of Phineas who are called the sons of Zadok. And if you read in Ezekiel, you find out that the sons of Zadok are established in the priesthood of the millennial kingdom. So this covenant of God is, is ongoing, it's perpetual, it's the Yeberiti Shalom. Yeberiti Shalom, this covenant of peace. Why does God give it to him? Why, and why does he even say it this way? My covenant of peace I give to Phineas. Why? Because verse 13, Phineas, quote, made atonement 
for the sons of Israel. Check this out. There's only one way to make atonement for sin. There's one way. Blood. Understand. Blood is the only way to make atonement. The reason for all the sacrifices was that blood would be shed temporarily to make atonement to cover the people's sins temporarily. But if you reject the sacrificial blood, atonement still has to be made. It's going to either be the blood of the animal or it's going to be the blood of the sinner. Leviticus 17.11, the Lord says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It was so serious that when God created us, he created us to have blood flow through our veins and it be our very life. We call it our life blood, right? God did that so we would understand how significant it was that we be atoned for, that we be cleansed, that we be washed. It has to be by blood. It is your life, the Lord would say. And either way, it's either gonna be the blood of sacrifice or it's gonna be the blood of the sinner himself or herself. God calls it my covenant of peace. And so now it's the role of the priesthood to maintain that priest. Listen, last day's church. Brothers and sisters, in this fellowship, you are a royal priesthood. Your role is now the covenant of peace. What do you mean? The word covenant also means bond. Ephesians chapter four, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, the covenant of peace. It's now our covenant. It's our bond. The bond of peace, please get this, the bond of peace is not preserved by moral compromise. This is what the church is confused with right now. We'll keep the peace by being tolerant. We'll keep the peace in coexistence. That is not how you keep the bond of peace, my friends. It's a false peace. It will not last. The bond of peace is preserved when we honor the blood. When we honor the blood. What does that mean? Listen, some may still be struggling with how a God of grace could bring such a plague and bless the bearer of the spear. That's not the end of the story. The Lord, the Lord protected Israel from the vain attempts of Balaam to curse them in the mountains above. Okay? Now they're invited into the curse by their own moral compromise, and so are we when we morally compromise with this world. We invite the curse. But here's, here's the point of the spear. What was the original punishment that God called for as a result of this curse? Hanging in broad daylight. Hanging in broad daylight. That's what Jesus did. He was hung up in broad daylight. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus took the plague of the curse of our sin on the cross. He was hung up in broad daylight. He wore the thorns. He held the nails. He bore the shame. He was put to death for the sin. And then, John 13, 1934, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood 
and water came out. And you could say the plague was checked in your life and in mine. That's what the God of love did to check our plague. And not just ours, but the entire world. You wanna talk about a brutal, heartless, mean God? He took the spear. He was hung up in broad daylight. And at the end of the spear, brothers and sisters, there is shalom. That's where our peace is. Romans chapter five, verse one, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, here's how the story changed. Here's how the Lord revealed his massive grace for us while we were in the tent. Rather than driving the spear through our bellies, he took the spear himself. He changed the whole thing. Much more, Paul says, than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Cruel? Heartless God? No. No. Jesus took the sin and he took the spear so that through him we might have the shalom. That's the gospel. So I'll end with this question. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God? He checks the curse by the blood of Christ. We keep the covenant of peace. Listen, through an uncompromising faith in Jesus. Some of you might say, well, I have peace with God, but I have friends who do not. I have peace with God, but I have a family member right now who is living at Baal Peor. I've got someone I love dearly who is compromised. You have two options with that. We, we can just feel bad. Oh, man, I feel awful. Or we can speak the word and continue to speak the word. And by the way, in relationships in my life, I will tell you it's difficult, but I do speak the word. I do say, you know what you're doing is not right. I love you too much not to say it. On the verge of the promise, Brothers and sisters, may we have the boldness and the courage of Phineas to take the excising spear of the word and go in and give people every opportunity to be saved for all eternity. Amen? Father, give us that boldness. Not to be rude and arrogant and, 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 and stupid and self-righteous and holier than thou. Lord, I, I, first remove any of that potential from us. But give us such a burden in our hearts for our lost friends and family that we just can't keep our mouths shut, that we have to speak the truth in love, that, that we want to be part, Lord, as your priesthood of checking the plague, of speaking Jesus into this lost, compromised, corrupt world. And Lord, may we become ever the more uncompromising as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>